I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy. Not now, not ever. I mean... These comments are completely inappropriate. Oh, I'm sure she's right. But I ain't spending any time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves! Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy, very good. (laughs) Hello and welcome to an all-new episode of Democracy Sausage brought to you by Policy Forum at Crawford School of Public Policy and the ANU Australian Studies Institute. I'm Martin Pearce and I am holding the tongs today, stepping in today for your regular host, Mark Kenny. Now, in a special barbecue treat, we are bringing you today's episode as part of the International GovComs Festival. Facilitated by the Content Group, it's the world's first global event dedicated to the future of government communications. And this year's festival is part of the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development's Government Aftershock Global Dialogue. And in this crazy year, government communications have been more important than ever. Amidst the coronavirus pandemic, how governments communicate the risks of the virus and the ever-changing restrictions has been literally a matter of life and death. So today we want to lift the veil on government communication and find out how it works and how it's changing and what governments and citizens can learn from the 2020 experience. And we've got a stellar panel of experts to unpick some of this stuff for us today. First of all, the of course, our regular podcast Dr. Maria Taflaga is Director of the ANU Australian Politics Studies Centre and a lecturer at the ANU School of Politics and International Relations. Hello, Maria. How are you? Very well, thank you. 
Looking forward to talking about government communications today. Can't wait. Can't wait. And joining us remotely is Jeanette Cotterell. Jeanette is Managing Director of Executive Council Australia, a government relations and media consultancy. And prior to entering strategic communications and lobbying, she was a TV producer with the Nine Network with BBC TV in London and with the Seven Network in Australia. Hello, Jeanette. Hi, how are you all? Many thanks for joining us today. And last but certainly not least is Fiona Benson. Fiona is the founder of FJ Partners Strategic Advisory. She's a former press secretary to two federal cabinet ministers, and she specializes in devising innovative stakeholder engagement, media and communication strategies. Hi, Fiona. Hello. Thanks for having me. Thank you all for joining us at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate today. Let's start with a a question which I'll throw open to all three of you. Maybe we can go to you first, though, Fiona. How is the government communications landscape changing? Well, I think uh, we have heard more from government this year than we ever have in the past. Uh, There there has been no shortage of government. communications via all of the the usual channels, particularly as regards COVID. And that's obviously been uh, important from uh, the point of view of a population who are having to cope with something that is unprecedented. And I think having that regular regular communication from government, both federal and state, uh, bringing in different spokespeople like chief health officers, uh, the head nurse, that has really helped people to have more trust and to feel more confident. But that that certainly has been a shift in in of ginormous magnitude in uh, in the way that government communications operates. Jeanette, you're at the coalface of some of this. What's your take on uh, how government comms has has changed this year? I, I totally agree that. Um we're hearing more directly from government probably than any other time at a time in our lives that have never been more critical to ensure that we get the right messages at the right time. And I've worked, uh, especially this year, I guess, with many organisations at the cold face of this COVID virus, in particular those perhaps like in childcare, where at the beginning they were really struggling to get that one source of truth from the government. There seemed to be a fairly disconnected uh, communication plan from the federal government to the various state governments. And we're still seeing that in the, in the, you know, political disputes over border and particularly some uh, state leaders putting, I guess, their, the health of their people are more important than, I guess, the, the health of the economy. But I think as far as the federal government goes, the ability to speak very clearly to its own citizens has been reasonably successful and um, there's a, a, a yet-to-be-published study that has been put together by uh, a group of university academics from uh, Australia, the UK and the US that analysed the impact of po- public policy, particularly in COVID uh, safety measures and the willingness of various citizens to abide by that. And it shows that in Australia... Australians were more likely to listen to the messages on social distancing, uh, to self-quarantine with, with signs of illness and to behave oneself as far as uh, hand-washing if they thought the government was looking after them. And that came across very clearly when they analysed the impacts of policies such as job seeker and job keeper. People would 
more likely, especially the younger they are, to self-isolate and to, you know, socially distance if they thought that they were also being looked after uh, on the financial side. So I thought that was very interesting. And I think that is starting to come across very clearly in the communications from government. Maria, I feel like this year, particularly from the Australian government, we've seen a bit of a sort of learning on the job from Scott Morrison because obviously the year obviously started off with the bushfire crisis. And in fairness to him, the communication around that was not great at times, but certainly it's been a, a lot better through the COVID crisis. What's your take on all of that? I actually, I think that's a very apt description. It definitely was a, a dimension of um, learning on the job and um, it's very difficult for us to actually cast our minds back to the uh, last summer because it, it feels like we've all lived through about a decade um, this year. But, um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, the Prime Minister did make several, um, uh, I guess, major major kind of missteps um, which did reduce public confidence uh, in the things that Jeanette was kind of pointing to in that in that study that the government would be um, looking after them in relation to bushfires. Um, and then I guess if, um, I guess to continue in a slightly critical vein, there was a lot of criticism, I suppose, of the government being slow to enact a um, public health uh, response. Um, and I guess one of the things that I'd like to know from our, from our two experts is, well, what goes behind uh, creating a public health campaign for an unknown disease in a pandemic that seems to be uh, rapidly unraveling very quickly? I mean, how how realistic were those were those criticisms of the government? Um, were they actually slow to act on that? I think that sounds like a good question to throw to you, Fiona. I think some of the criticisms were uh, a little bit unfair because there is a sense that you do want to get it right. You know, when you're when you're in government and when you're you're going through this sort of a crisis, I mean, I don't think anyone could be criticised in government for not working hard enough, whether that's at a state or a federal level. I mean, you're in there for 14, 15, possibly more hours per day, seven days a week, and I think the nature of today's media cycle, where where if you do make a small slip up or, or don't get something exactly right, you are crucified for it uh, in mainstream media, on social media. Yes, the cycle moves on quickly, but I think that there is an element of wanting to make sure you take the time to get it right. Also, you know, working out working out the systems. And I think, look, if we look at, say, we can compare the bushfires and and COVID very directly here. If we look at the use of app technology as a way of directly communicating with the population. So during the bushfires, the bushfires, um, fires near me app became very popular. It was downloaded some 1.6 million times, you know, by, by January 2020. People were using it. They were really engaged with it. And then, of course, we had the COVID Safe app, which has been hugely controversial in terms of its functionality, its uh, value, its effectiveness. And you could almost argue that that was rolled out too quickly it it was it came out before it was ready and and that then created a, a problem 
uh, from a from a messaging point of view. Jeanette, I mean, governments all, all around the world have struggled with their communication strategies and the communication styles this year. Do you think that the the way that the Australian government has responded, and as we talked about, you know, sort of Scott Morrison kind of learning on the job in terms of the development from how he was through the, the bushfires and into the uh, COVID crisis, do you think the Australian performance in government communications has been exemplary? Has it been a, a model? Has it been a, a sort of a global leader? I certainly think I agree with the, the comments that uh, the Prime Minister has certainly learned his lessons from the terrible um, performance that we saw during the, the height of the bushfires where he completely misread the, the community expectations and and uh, that terrible kind of forcing people to shake his hands when they were traumatised without kind of appreciating that wasn't what we wanted to hear. I think what they've learned, and I, I know this because I've spoken to the Minister for Health very early, that they made a very conscious decision to put the Chief Medical Officer, Brendan Murphy, front and centre of most of their communication on the health aspects, which kind of took away the politics of it. It made people feel very comfortable that they were getting clear, non-spin uh, information from the government. Uh, and where it's worked well is when they've had the National Cabinet and all the, the premiers speaking clearly and alignment, where it's fallen down is when they start to, you know, splinter in the politics rears its ugly head head again. And I think that's going to be an ongoing challenge for them because we're, you know, yes, we're getting through the, the worst of COVID um, particularly well, better than most of the, the rest of the world, but we have a huge hurdle to, to now overcome when it comes to the vaccine and convincing every single Australian that they should take the vaccine when it's been when it's going to be available. And that is going to be an enormously traumatic challenge because, you know, the impact of social media, the the access on those social media platforms of the, the anti-vaccinators, uh, the anti-vaxxer campaign crowd will be terribly complicated for the government to manage. And that is where I think they're really going to have to work very, very hard to make sure that they become the only source of truth going forth. I do want to talk a little more about the role of social media in government communications shortly. But first, I just want to pick up on something you said there, Jeanette, in terms of the increase we've seen on the amount of experts, chief scientists and the like, that are put out in front of the public to communicate this type of thing. Of course, there was that famous quote from Michael Gove where he said, you know, we've had enough of experts. Has the last year proven that, in actual fact, people have haven't had enough of experts. They do want expert opinion uh, when they're communicating sort of crucial health messages like this. I was just going to say, working across a lot of medical researchers, I mean, there is an absolute appetite, and I think talking to News Corp for journos, this is true, that the Australian public could not get enough of medical research breakthrough stories of, of uh, great Australian innovation in the treatments and and I guess the chase for the vaccination, it's been a hugely popular story for all Australia and uh, and I don't think that's that's dying down anytime soon. I personally was getting so tired of seeing Dan Andrews' daily press conference but that I don't live in Victoria yeah, yeah. and I think there is a little, you know, risk of, of being completely overexposed to the whole 
COVID-19 drama. But uh, while we're still going through that process of getting a vaccine, I think the appetite by Australians for more information from people who they trust, being medical research community, doctors, the nursing community, I think as long as the politicians keep out of the playing politics with it, then the Australians are more likely to listen to the authority of, of the medical research community and act accordingly to that advice. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you're that you're making there, um, Jeanette. And and I guess another way of sort of thinking about it is to sort of say, well, it really depends on the on the experts and it really depends on the on the problem. Like I think when it comes to something like public health or even uh, a bushfire crisis though perhaps more arguable in the bushfires, I think it's much easier for the public to kind of recognise the expertise of medical practitioners and to accept that advice because we're sort of trained to do that, you know, like most people don't question their doctors when they go to um, the health service and, you know, when your backyard is on fire, you're, you're going to listen to the firefighter, right? Or most of us will. What I guess is kind of interesting is that when it's on contested public policy spaces, which are inherently actually just about trade-offs and there is no right answer, then I think it becomes, you know, um, I think that's in some ways what Michael Gove is kind of talking about. He's just trying to extend the argument and slur all experts, no matter where they where they are, whether or not people actually really do want to hear from from experts anymore. And, and that might be because... Um, Perhaps there is a perception that these experts have been kind of uh, co-opted by political positions and they're part of a political kind of narrative. And I guess I'd be really interested to sort of know what, what you two sort of think about, I guess, what has happened to the public sphere because it seems to me like over the last sort of 15 years that in many ways the sort of civil society groups that we used to trust – to um, contribute to public debate like the unions or churches or welfare agencies, um, you know, or economists or, or whatever, um, the space for, or business even, like the space for them to kind of contribute to public debate seems to have kind of narrowed, leaving the kind of government at the sort of mainstream public sphere at the centre center of that and everything kind of being in reaction to the government. But, you know, this proliferation of tiny conversations happening kind of privately in our own homes or in our sort of private digital kind of spheres. And so um, these kind of, you know, like experts are almost kind of like, well, this is my expert and this is your expert and they're going to duke it out. There is a very, I think, underneath some of what you're saying there, Maria, I think we could talk about maybe climate change and sustainability <laughs> as the obvious example. Where, uh, <laughs> where, you know, and that's certainly been a fascinating argument. You know, as Jeanette said, people have accepted um, and embraced having medical experts speak to them, which has then begged the question, why is there such reluctance to listen to uh, sustainability scientists, climate change experts. If only we had Frank Yotso here. But uh, the uh, it's a, it's a really interesting dynamic because that is just so polarizing, and I think it will become polarizing again, as Jeanette said, once we move into that space of having to to get people vaccinated and the, and the anti vaxxer movement. And that's where again, I mean, one thing that I did think was was very interesting in COVID was you would remember very early on. There is also a role, not just for experts, but for expert communicators. And Norman Swan was just everywhere and everyone was listening to him. And he was able to uh, 
to simplify the messages about hand washing and hand hygiene and things to, to a level that, that people were able to really engage with and follow. And he actually ended up getting a bit of criticism from the government at some point for almost taking over the role yeah. of, of government communications, which was fascinating. But he was filling a void and, and he is an expert communicator. I mean, politicians are, are perhaps expert campaigners, but they're not always expert communicators. Uh, and, and I think the other thing I'd say is, as far as business goes, again, we've seen them, we've seen business stepping up in the sustainability space. You know, the Woolworths announcement about net zero, ANZ net zero. There is in some areas and in particularly these contested areas, I would argue that some of those businesses have, have gone beyond beyond government are pushing ahead. And we saw that with the, the, the same-sex marriage debate. It's a really fascinating dynamic. Now, uh, we, we've got, you know, expert sort of government communicators in the room. So I'd like to do a bit of a kind of thought experiment, sort of pulling out a little bit more around this whole thing about we've got this huge challenge coming up with vaccinations uh, and how we're going to convince people to do that as you, as both uh, you've said Fiona and Jeanette and, and you have also said there is this sort of uh, significant and probably growing anti-vaxxer movement. If the two of you were advising government in terms of their communications now, how would you what kind of, what would you be saying to them in terms of how they go about messaging to get convince the public that they do actually need to get those vaccinations. Perhaps, Jeanette, if I start with you. Sure. And I think, it, like I said before, I think it's going to be a singly most challenging uh, communications uh, strategy they would have to consider to roll out. Also considering that it will be rolled out in the height of a high-stakes election year, which makes uh, – you know, the, the Prime Minister down, his uh, temptation to play politics with this uh, being, you know, quite easy to do. I mean, it will be very difficult, and I do believe, actually, that as soon as we get a vaccination uh, available, a vaccine available, that uh, the government will be going, looking for a, a way to have a start the election campaign as early as August. So I think, though, that has got great potential to really muddy the waters because not only will the government be very tempted to, uh, I guess, play politics with the fact that it alone has got this vaccine and it is delivering a, a safe solution to its citizens. Uh, it will also be tempted to draw the, the critics on board, the anti-vaxxers, uh, people who want to run interference with, the, with the, an election campaign. So I think the absolute imperative would have to be make sure that the messaging is very simple and cut through. And uh, that's going to be exceptionally difficult in such a highly charged political environment. But again, I draw back on the uh, this international research that was led by Monash Partners here. And one of the things that they looked at, what also motivated particularly young people who are most likely to be the least likely to take up uh, some of these, you know, social distancing and, and other things and maybe least likely to take up a vaccine because I don't believe that they are uh, at risk is using punishment and they found that where, where someone was threatened with a fine or some other kind of punishment, they were more likely to step in line and and do the self-quarantine. So whatever the communication messaging is, it will have to come very hard with some behavioural change 
demands, I guess. And if they're not going to make the vaccine compulsory, then how are they going to compete with the anti-vaxxers? How are they going to force people, literally, to take this vaccine uh, if they don't make it compulsory. And I think that's going to be a huge challenge for it. Fiona, what would be your strategy based on what Jeanette said there and what you said earlier? Perhaps it sounds like we need to roll out Norman Swan to do it in a slightly threatening way. <laughs> maybe, maybe. And uh, look, I'm sure Norman will be one of many champions um, or who who will come on board as they launch into this vaccination campaign, which I think it's pretty clear they're already laying the groundwork for. I mean, there's a lot of messaging already about testing and really trying to educate the Australian public about what the testing regime looks like so that once a vaccination is available, people will have some kind of understanding of all the steps that's gone through. So there's a sort of a safety element there the announcement about uh, the manufacturing facility in Australia. Again, people are more likely to trust something that was made in Australia. So I think, you know, they're already setting up that groundwork. I think, you know, there's a question around uh, carrot and stick, uh, as Jeanette sort of flagged. Obviously, they may be able to uh, keep some travel limitations in place for people who who don't get the vaccine I think that becomes a bit of a a bit of a stick likewise and we saw this with, with childcare and the the vaccination debate with childcare if you tie government benefits and government payments to to getting the vaccination that's another another big big lever but there will be certainly an element of of myth busting that the government will need to do and they will need to to be very unified in their communications and we can't have any sort of um, any gaps between the the state and territories and the Commonwealth when it comes to this vaccination campaign. They've announced what the strategy is going to be and I think we'll hear a lot more about that in coming months, who gets vaccinated first and how, and I think it's just going to be a rolling campaign, which is which is the right approach. And I, I might just jump in there. That's, that's actually going to be a really tricky area for the government to manage because we've already seen that conversation coming out of out of America there will be a huge expectation that everyone will get a vaccine when it's available, which is very unlikely to be the case in Australia. And there's already a lot of pre-positioning from the government to try and convince people that it does indeed uh, have the capacity and ability to put Australia ahead of the queue. And there's been a few false starts on uh, signing agreements with various vaccine providers and they, again, because this will be landing at the base of a highly charged election year, I think the messaging it will have to deal with on who gets that vaccine first, who gets it last, what's the time lapse between that and how they're going to keep people calm and, you know, stop the, I guess, a stampede on your local pharmacy as soon as, uh, you know, the word is out that there is a vaccine available. I think it's going to be – I know that they're terribly sensitive about that already and uh, there's a lot of concern that maybe they can't deliver the vaccine as expected when it's, uh, when it's available. Now, I do want to take a break in a, in a second, but before we do, all this talk about a vaccine reminds me of something that I saw on Twitter last week. There was a story that came out of the UK that a, a vaccine that they were working on apparently has a 90% success rate, which terrific story. Um, and I looked at uh, a story about that on Twitter 
coming out of the UK and it was followed by literally hundreds of messages from British people saying, no way am I getting this, you know, and it, it, the, the anti-vaxxer theme was coming on strong there. So we've talked a lot about Australian politics, but Maria, I want to kind of pick your brains about UK politics for a second and get you to reflect a little on how well they have messaged the coronavirus crisis and what particular challenges they might have in terms of getting that message out about a vaccine? Well, I don't think they've done a very good job at all. I mean, they haven't. I mean, uh, Britain is is going down into is basically coming down into more lockdowns. Um, the the messages around um, the COVID virus have have changed an awful lot. Uh, there is a vicious and uh, fraught debate about pitting the economy versus people's lives in a way that, um, you know, is, is a much more, uh, amplified than that debate we sort of saw in, in Melbourne because, uh, you know, there is a fear that public hospitals will be overwhelmed again. Um, the Dominic Cummings has, has just left Downing Street. Uh, he's, you know, Boris Johnson's kind of key strategist. And there are sort of regular reports coming out of Downing Street that, that Boris is demoralized and, and effectively struggling to do the job. Um, and I guess there is a sort of, um, I guess reflecting on the, that study that Jeanette referred to at the beginning, I, I think there is a, a deep sense amongst many citizens in the United Kingdom that, the government isn't necessarily always um, looking out for them um, and perhaps putting economic interests first. We saw that with the, the Eat in the City um, voucher scheme, which seems to have sort of perpetuated the virus. Um, and then there's also just resistance in many parts of the country to, to following uh, rules, perhaps because there is a sort of feeling that the NHS can't cope in winter normally um, and government services aren't there normally and, and now they aren't there at this time of of great um, crisis, so I'm I'm not surprised that people um, are lacking trust in uh, the government's capacity to deliver a, a vaccine, even if they might have high trust in the NHS's capacity to to care about them, even if they can't care for them. Because some of their messaging, some of the UK messaging, government's messaging at the outset was quite clear. And it cut through. They had the whole thing where they, you know, sort of... Cl- Stay cl- home, save the NHS, yeah. Exactly. And yeah. the clap for carers, the whole country seemed to be pulling together, but now it all seems to be falling apart. So, as you said, Dominic Cummings has gone. So Boris Johnson is presumably looking for the next Dominic Cummings. Perhaps he might turn to you, Maria. What kind of advice would you give him in terms of that vaccine? So, I mean, the little I do know about vaccines and, and anti-vaxxers um, is that you always get about 1% of the population that will always refuse a virus. Like that's just, um, it's just, it's just a quirk of human nature, but that most people are responsive to being given, um, information if it's facilitated by a trusted source. And so, I mean, uh, both Fiona and, and Jeanette sort of spoke about different incentive, uh, sort of structures. And I think one of the ways that no jab, no play kind of works is that you can eventually kind of register to be a conscientious objector, but you, you have to basically go through your GP, receive lots of information, be given lots of opportunities to change your mind. And most people get the vaccine. And I imagine a similar layered strategy will need to be applied in um, a place like Australia and a, and a place like, um, especially potentially a place like 
the UK. I mean, we all kind of know that the first people getting this vaccine are going to be healthcare workers and that that the success of the vaccine amongst healthcare workers who are trusted and who are expert uh, may actually help to alleviate some of the concerns of the public as well as, you know, I mean, literally the people who would be looking after you if you got COVID are taking this vaccine. That sounds like a strong job interview for uh, Dominic Cummings' position there if Boris Johnson is listening. And I'm sure... It's too wet in the UK. I don't like it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this sounds like a perfect moment to take a quick break, but join us again shortly. When we come back, we'll have a talk a little about the role of social media in government communications. I like sunshine. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods. Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Well, welcome back. I am still here with Maria Taflaga and Jeanette Cottrell and Fiona Benson. And we are having a fascinating discussion about government communications in the COVID era. I want to start off part two by talking a little about social media and how that has changed uh, government communications, how significant it is that politicians are able to just jump online and communicate directly with constituents. Perhaps, Fiona, if I can get some reflections from you on that first. Having your boss access their own social media is every media advisor's worst nightmare. (laughs) 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 You're quite often cleaning cleaning things up. but look, it, it is fascinating. And before coming in today, I just had a bit of a look because I hadn't sort of checked recently. And looking at our leaders' social media performance, there is a strong case that they really need to up their game. Uh, the PM, uh, I have to say, kills it in terms of uh, the opposition leader when it comes to to followers, when we're looking at, at platforms and therefore reach. I mean, Instagram is one of the biggest and, and fastest rising platforms on the, the social media landscape. And, you know, poor old Albo's only got 49,000 followers, whereas the PM's got, you know, 220 odd thousand or, or more. I mean, they both lose out to Jacinta Ardern, who's got a whopping 1.6 million. <laughs> and then, of course, Chris Hemsworth at 45 million leaves them all for dust. But the, the point is, like, it, it is such a direct way of communicating. There is no filter. And, and it's a really important part of any strategy these days is being able to have a really strong social media presence, uh, both organically. And then, of course, when you come to campaign time, that sort of pay promotion you can target the demographics the geographics it's just it's an extraordinarily powerful tool and 
you can also, obviously, we've got the Twitter trolls and everyone else, but you can also have real advocates uh, in your camp fighting your battles on social media. You'll see in the comment threads where, and and this is, again, what we're going to see with COVID is these opposing camps doing battle in the digital sphere. Sounds to me like Anthony Albanese needs to uh, audition for the role of Thor, perhaps to increase his... uh, Or get a puppy. Or get a puppy. That's exactly exactly right. Jeanette, what are your reflections on social media and the way it's changed government communications? Oh, I think it's had a profound impact on the way that they communicate. I mean, we've seen from the very early part of this year, pre-COVID, you know, Scott Morrison was under... Uh, increasing criticism for being a little too confected on social media. He have, would have these complex videos and, and uh, especially with the bushfires, it, it looked like he was doing these uh, meeting, meeting the locals who were being affected just to have it filmed to upload it to social media. And I think that lack of authenticity really kind of comes back to bite them at some end. I think it's interesting, even just today, uh, my colleague, JWS researcher, John Scales, had some analysis of the Queensland election and it showed that 17% of voters got their information from the ABC, but the exact same amount got their their information from Facebook. So it's no longer regarded as the, you know, the poor man's, you know, media outlet. It is a significant social media contributor and um, I think the both parties and all parties need to start to work out how to reach in an authentic way those who use social media when you've got other things running interference like the accusation of fake news that Trump made so famous and, uh, you know, how do you determine what's accurate and what's not on social media? And that this is, again, I guess where the social media players, the, you know, Google and uh, and TikTok and the like, they have a, res- a responsibility and a very important one, particularly when you come to the truth of vaccines, on making sure that people are getting as accurate as possible the information via social media. So, Maria, clearly the role of social media is becoming ever more important when it comes to government communications. But we hear a lot as well about how social media creates kind of bubbles where, you know, people really only tend to follow and be interested in those people that reflect or agree with their own views. So how much of a problem is that creating for us in terms of, getting government communications out to the entire community. Yeah, I think that's sort of um, one of the sort of essential challenges of um, something like social media. And and I guess in some ways I, I don't want to be alarmist about this because whenever we actually introduce a new form of, of media, if we look over the very long run, we see that politicians actually really struggle to learn to communicate on <laughs> on this new communication device. You know, like um, FDR was considered to be excellent on the radio, for example, <laughs> and Menzies was seen to be excellent on the radio and not very good at TV. You know, Goff was great at TV. Billy McMahon sucked at TV. So um, we can kind of sort of see a similar sort of thing going on here. I guess what is different about all of those other forms of communications, uh, you know, radio, uh, television, um, is that in some ways social media is returning us to the landscape of um, 
the proliferation of newspapers that used to exist in the 19th century, many of which that just published lies. Um, and, uh, you know, that's where the term like, yellow journalism kind of comes from and, and all of that kind of stuff. And and what is sort of really kind of fascinating to, from my perspective about the incentive structure that social media seems to create for politicians is that it, it pits a very highly disciplined system like Australia um, where party discipline is really strong, one of the strongest in the world, the incentives are all there to follow the line against this need to be seen to be authentic. And this is not such a big problem for party leaders because, or, you know, and, and most senior ministers because they have stuff to talk about anyway and they're the authority of their office. But it's the younger ones that are sort of desperately trying to get attention um, who um, are sometimes very effective at using social media to sort of create like an authentic kind of voice um, and are clearly working out how to have like discussions online. Um, um, and that's sort of pitting them against, I guess, these sort of more centralised talking point filtering kind of machines coming out of centralised offices. And I'm really curious to see how this conflict kind of plays out um, over time. Um, and the sort of final thing I would kind of say about this is one thing that does concern me is that we still don't seem to know how to have positive conversations in this environment. It's very reactive, really good at destroying stuff, and we've seen oppositions do that very effectively. But building arguments, because it is fragmented, because it doesn't have a centralising mass audience, seems to make it very difficult to to push reform agendas forward. I'm impressed that we've had a conversation about social media and government without anyone using the words great work, Angus. But one, <laughs> one, one, one thing that I do want to pick up on is, on social media is, of course, Donald Trump and the way he uses social media. Um, and obviously through the US election campaign, some social media platforms have, have started slapping warnings on his tweets on his, and on his posts about the authenticity of the views that he is expressing there. But perhaps, Jeanette, if I can get your thoughts on this, how has Donald Trump sort of uh, manifestly changed the way that uh, social media is used by politicians? Oh, I think he has had... Uh an extraordinary impact on not only the way we view social media but how uh, his own citizens have learned to take information from him to the point where he is exceptionally dangerous in some of his views because they're uninformed or they're especially you know right now the claims that uh, totally unsubstantiated claims that the, the election has been rigged that there's been rorts that there's been corruption and to the credit of those uh, platforms to a certain extent that they're, they're trying very hard to kind of uh, challenge any claims that he's making that are untrue. And some of the, the mainstream media are refusing to obviously run some of his uh, press conferences, which has been unprecedented, I would say. But the fact that he uses Twitter as just this foghorn to say whatever he comes to his mind at 3 a.m., has been extraordinarily challenging and I can't imagine uh, how difficult it will be to cut through all that crazy noise that he's created. The, you know, this, this whole demonizing the mainstream media as fake news, uh, pumping up very sort of right wing groups to the point of 
frightening anarchy on the streets where people are starting to protest in his name, bearing arms. I mean, it's not just a Twitter he puts out. It's a call to arms through some very, you know, worrying groups there. So I think that the impact he's having right now is devastatingly bad and one hopes that uh, Australia would never go down that pathway. But again, it's a big challenge for these platforms themselves to not only, I guess, make judgment calls about what has been accurate or what is not, but also appreciating that the end result is whipping up some hysteria among, you know, some very hardcore groups that could lead to violence in America. It's it's extraordinary. I guess these social media platforms are running up against the sort of social license problem. Um, and I think what is kind of interesting from an Australian perspective is that they're very quick to act in the United States and in the UK because they clearly make a lot of money there and they're afraid of being regulated. Um, whereas in, in Australia, you know, the market is small, the profits are small, they're highly resistant to um, taking steps and taking action here. Um, and and also, um, you know, there is this current uh, legislation that the government has put up to um, force media platforms to share profits with local media operators here because, you know, that's the information that people mostly are getting on, on Facebook. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's often via traditional sources, just, just distributed by Facebook. Um, and, you know, we have, we see Google threatening to, to, and Facebook basically threatening to withdraw, um, from our, from our market. And it's a, a major concern for every country that doesn't have 400 million plus people. Now we've only got a few minutes left of talking about this really fascinating subject. And I'd like to spend the last few minutes t- talking about some kind of nuts and bolts of government comms. And one thing that I find particularly interesting, and I'll put this to you, Fiona, is that there are some policies which simply never arise above the sort of poor framing that that they have in their initial introduction. And the examples here might be, you know, Gillard's fixed carbon price, which he conceded up front would be a tax, or the coalition's union-busting bill, or the other one on religious freedom, both of which were gently shelved. What, what sort of role does that initial framing have in terms of its ultimate success? Oh, it's extraordinarily important and you can focus group test the hell out of something and it can still be an absolute flop. Uh, So a, a lot of it also comes down to, in many cases, how good the opposition is. You know, and a really quick witted opposition can kill something very, very quickly or taint it forever. You know, you mentioned the, the, the carbon tax, which is, you know, uh, a historic, um, oh, it's just, it's hard to even really <laughs> describe in a few words what was, you know, such a, I remember sitting in, in parliament watching that legislation pass at 3 a.m. in the morning only for it to, to then be repealed. Um, but, you know, like you, at the same time, I remember Gillard uh, announced a policy that the opposition quickly turned into uh, cash for clunkers. So that was the end of that very, very quickly. Uh, the uh, the Mediscare campaign of the 2016 election was another really interesting one. That was a, you know, a very negative campaign that got 
uh, quite a lot of traction. Uh, and even though it was challenged, an investigation was was eventually dropped into the direct text messaging that that formed part of that. So it really there is, I mean, the Australian government spends what is it two hundred and ten million dollars a year on advertising. It's an extraordinary amount of money. A lot of those campaigns um, are remarkable only for how utterly boring they are and, and and not at all memorable. There are a few that fall outside of that category. Um, there was a lot of controversy in the lead up to the 2019 campaign around um, the use of uh, government advertising, I say doing air quotes, um, promoting some energy policies and that, that was then the subject of an ANAO audit. Uh, but but it's, it's a huge amount of money that gets spent in government advertising, often very ineffectively would be my summation. Jeanette, it sounds to me like what Fiona is saying there is that a lot of the potential success for a policy can come down to essentially a battle of wits between government communicators. Is, is, that, a, is that a fair read? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the interesting thing we've seen, I guess, more recently, which will be fascinating to see if it survives past the beginning of next year and the election cycle is the government has tried very hard to be unified the national cabinet approach non not putting politics ahead of policy that obviously won't last for much longer one hopes it would but i doubt it will i think everything is about how it's how a, a message is presented how it gets cut through uh you know, you're right, there's policies that, you know, Parliament is littered with the corpses of policies that might have been a good idea, but because the communication underpinning it was complete failure, they have never got past uh, getting the policy passed in Parliament. And, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, even most recently as the government's free childcare, which was a terrific piece of social policy, uh, the government was warned at the time not to use the word free, maybe to use the word uh, removing those, you know, the, the gap on subsidies because turning off the free childcare would be a very difficult thing. And the fact that it trans, um, went back to a childcare subsidy that was perfectly fine was a good piece of policy. But again, because it didn't explain it very well, it sounded like it was taking away free childcare away from families, that it was turning off the job seeker, job keeper to childcare workers, which wasn't quite the case. But it just didn't explain what it was doing very well. And, and it probably got marked down for a policy that was working very well. So it was probably more of a, a missed opportunity than a bad, um, policy. But that's, that's the key. If the government wants to get rewarded for good policy decision making, it has to articulate what it's trying to do, uh, in very clear, very easy to digest messaging. And that obviously doesn't happen very, very often or very well, which is, uh, you know, the mistake many governments make all the time, but I think particularly when it gets in areas that, that the messaging is absolutely vital, like the rollout of a, of a vaccine program, uh, the communication has to be absolutely perfect and underpinned by evidence-based research, 
not uh, polling focus groups, but real evidence-based research. So a final question, which I'll put to Fiona first and then to you, Jeanette, and then perhaps, Maria, if I can get your reflections on it at the end. Um, What communications methods and processes are we leaving behind in this sort of brave new world of social media and getting experts to, 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 to front the camera to talk about important public health messages? And, and what should government communicators be thinking about doing differently from now on? That's a really interesting question, Martin, because I would almost argue that despite all of the changes that we've seen, government communication still follows a very old school traditional model in some respects. You know, it's always the government always likes to sort of drop an announcement out to the newspapers so they get a clean run uh, without any external commentary, you know, to, to, to start the following day. And that's followed up by a round of, of radio. And then we've got the doorstop to get the pictures for the TV nightly news and, yeah, throw in a couple of social media posts. So it, it, I, what I find interesting is how little some of that very traditional, very longstanding media uh, practice has been in terms of government communication. But I think, you know, Maria touched on it very well before when she said as far as social goes, it's all about, you know, authenticity, what Jeanette said about uh, campaigns being underpinned by evidence-based research. People people will want to look up, they'll want to see for themselves that the information is there somewhere with a .gov.au uh, URL. So so that's what it's really going to come down to. But, yeah, that would be my observation is, is how little things have changed in some respects uh, given the magnitude of, of change on other fronts. And, Jeanette, what's your take on that? I think uh, that, that- – they're great points. And I think one thing I've observed over the years, 20 years of being in Canberra, is a conservative government like the one we've got in place at the moment is leaning more and more and more towards the right-wing media being mostly, I guess, News Corp and Sky News. And that suits their audience, that suits their level of comfort, but I'm not entirely sure it's serving the greater Australian public uh, the best and I think there needs to be a really strong mindful diversion away from just those you know right-wing bugles from the media that yes they're you know they're all very good you know, newspapers and they're very good uh, media outlets but there becomes a, a power and balance of media capacity to analyze the government's um, Policies to pick apart their uh, their behaviour to really ensure that there's thorough investigation of what the government is doing, and I think that that is going to become a stronger and stronger point of concern for, I guess, observers like myself and 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 everyone on this panel, if the government continues to just tend to favour its media outlets that are more to its political cover. And I think that that is a real issue. And I think social media has a, a, a an ability to, I guess, challenge that. But at the same time, we just have to make sure that the media is a very strong, uh, challenging beast that that takes up the arguments against the government. That we're not just, uh, you know, listening to policy being announced without it being properly tested. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting point that you make there, um, Jeanette. And I suspect the, the reason why it happens is um, because it's it's just simply easier. Um, and 
But I, I guess I wonder what is the long-term sustainability of that when, um, you know, we're already living in a, in a time where the status quo is um, shifting before our very eyes and we cannot uh, continue to live in the glory days of 2019 or, or 2010 or, or, or whenever whenever it is. And, and that ability to be able to actually be persuasive um, will be critical for any government seeking to pursue an agenda because, as Fiona ultimately said, you know, not much has actually changed in the terms of the way news is produced despite all of this churn because certain processes actually need to be followed in order to produce verified high-quality content. And despite the fact the way news is delivered has changed, you know, the work practices that are in place to, to see that information vetted and and put through a, a normal media process have shouldn't really change, really. Um, and, and so um, I guess we'll sort of see what happens. Plenty of food for thought there, but we are going to have to draw this discussion to a close. It's been fascinating. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, so I'd like to send it, extend huge thanks to uh, our panel today, Maria, of course, Fiona Benson and Jeanette Cottrell. Thank you so much for sharing your views and your expertise with us. Uh, listeners, I'd like to thank you too. Thanks for tuning in today. And for all those people who are tuning in to us for the first time through the GovComs Festival, do tune in again. You can get in touch with us. We're on Twitter as uh, Apps Policy Forum. That's APPS Policy Forum. You can join us on Facebook. We're under Policy Forum Pod there. Uh, And if you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We're always keen to hear your thoughts on what we do. And whilst you're there, don't forget to hit subscribe. But you can also find us on Acast, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your pods from. So Democracy Sausage will return with a fresh episode on Thursday. So from me, cheerio from now and from my panel, thank you very much again. Bye. Thank Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.